Something about the cross that draws us for all its ugliness and horror. People have shunned it and mocked it and tried to get away from it, but it looms as large as it's ever loomed in history. For many of us here, it's been the place of all places where we've found our true selves, where we've discovered the lights being turned on. How ironic that outside a Palestinian city 2,000 years ago, we should find our home. And Paul says, above all else, this is it, we preach Christ. Not any Christ doing anything, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, mockery, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, both Greeks and Jews. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans, sometimes in times of revolt. We read uh, in uh, history manuals of hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions lining the roads and the hillsides. What happened to Jesus in terms of his physical suffering, however horrific it was, was not all that uncommon. Yet when Jesus died, the impact it made then and has continued to make for 2,000 years is another reminder that this single man is utterly unique in the whole history of civilization. Take the centurion. The centurion, as I mentioned some moments ago, who would have been responsible in charge of the execution. What would it be like to be in charge of executions week on, week out? He must have been a hard-hearted, ruthless man. No other kind of man would have survived. And he'd done it countless times. He'd watched many men die in sheer agony more than he may have been able to count. He had been responsible for personally or giving the orders to break the legs of many a man that their death might be speeded up. Yet a heart that hard, a heart that cold, was somehow warm that day. What was it? We may assume that he'd never heard Jesus preach or never seen Jesus heal. We may assume that he'd never followed him round the villages, watched him still the wind or calm the storm. The only thing he saw was how he died and it touched his heart. It was all that it took, the death of this man, to cause a weather-worn soldier to make a tremendous step of faith. I'm asking you today whether you've seen what that centurion saw and whether you have taken for yourself that step of faith. Surely this man was the Son of God. You see, the cross is not an event in history, it's the event in history. Not a reason that Jesus came, but the reason that he came. And as John Stott writes, although it was now the end of his life, the final evening he was spending with his disciples, and although he had but a few more hours to live, Jesus was not looking back at a mission he had completed, 
still less that he was, had failed. He was still looking forward to a mission which he was about to fulfill. The mission of a lifetime of 30 to 35 years was to be accomplished in its last 24 hours. Indeed, its last six. Jesus, the only person who has lived in order to die. We live in order to live. We deny death, we ignore it, we shy away from it, we do everything in our power to put it off in ourselves and in others. This man lived that he might die. And when death is known to be near, people make final plans. People become much more precise about their actions and their words. People get their house in order. People make plans for those being left behind. Unspoken words for many years are perhaps spoken. Loose ends are tied. Final acts, final hours, final words. Jesus is on the edge of death. And in that sense gets his own house in order. Final words, final acts. And there are seven sayings. Seven words that come from Jesus from the cross. What are these words? Are they words of chance muttered by a desperate martyr? No. They are in keeping with the rest of Jesus' life when everything was planned down to the last detail. You remember the Christmas stories when his birth was planned, the right place, the right people, the right time, all meticulously worked out. Is this event, his death, been left to chance? No, not at all. These are words of intent painted by the divine deliverer, says Max Licardo, on the canvas of sacrifice. They are words that mattered most. Final words that put his house in order. Closing words, concluding a life well lived. Interesting that it's seven, don't you think? The perfect number, the mark of completion. Seven, the expression of heaven now in his death, crammed with significance. There are seven words to end it all. Seven words that sum up his life. And as Peter said, maybe a year or so previous to this, Lord, to whom can we go? Because your words are the words of life eternal. So here they are. The seven words that ended it all. One, Father, Father, forgive them. Notice that the first words of Jesus on the cross are addressed to his Father. You will notice that the final words that Jesus says are to his Father. The whole of Jesus' life can be summed up in his relationship with his Father. Its beginning and its ending, its living and its dying, is all about connection with Father God. How on earth we've turned the life of Jesus into a religion, I'll never know. It was all about his relationship with Father God. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Imagine it with me for a moment. The dialogue on that Friday morning was bitter. The onlookers were shouting, Hey, come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. The religious leaders were mocking. Ha ha, he saved others. Let him save himself. The soldiers were saying, I thought he was a king. Bitter words. Acidic with sarcasm, hateful, irreverent. Wasn't it enough that he was being crucified? Not enough to be shamed as a criminal? 
Weren't the nails sufficient? The crown of thorns too soft? The flogging too short? Obviously they were. Because they threw into that mix these hateful words to crush the soul. They'd broken the body and they sought to crush the spirit. They'd broken the body and now they broke the spirit. And commentating a few years after Jesus' death, Peter writes this. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. No retaliation, no backbiting, no wait till the resurrection, sunshine. No call on the angels, no words of reply except, Father, forgive them. Let them off the hook. Father, let's not hold this against them. They do not know what they are doing. Astonishing words. How different from every other crucified man where blasphemous expletives would have filled the air, disgusting and horribly though it is, they would sometimes cut the tongues of crucified men to stop them blaspheming anymore. But Jesus, with an excess of love, Father, forgive. His heart goes out, not to those who were with him, but to those who were against him. His very first thought on the cross, not for himself, but for others. Others drowning in their own evil. Others totally lost, not knowing what they were about. It's a certain grace, don't you think, to forgive people who repent and say to you that they are sorry. But here is forgiveness to those still hammering nails, still spiking the feet. Forgiveness to those who were showing no remorse, offering no regret, whose only response was to gamble his clothes. It's said that under pressure, the true person is revealed. How much more under pressure could this man, Jesus, ever have been? And we see, what do we see when he's put under pressure? We see a heart for people that are lost. For those who have no idea who they are, what they're about, and what on earth that they are doing. The very nature of God to forgive and not to condemn is exposed. Is this not a cameo, a little illustration, a little expression of all that Christ's love and life had stood for? A heart for the lost, compassion for the clueless, for those who have no idea who they are or what they are doing. And there were plenty that day who were lost. Judas Iscariot had no idea until it was too late. The disciples had no idea as they fled into the night. Peter totally lost the plot and then the cock crowed. The crowd had blindly waved Hosanna with their palm branches and with equal blindness had shouted for Barabbas. Did anyone know what they were doing? Caiaphas and his quango court, Pilate washing his hands, Herod and his mockery. Father, forgive them. They're lost with no idea who they are and what they're doing. In those moments for Jesus, enemies were enemies and friends were deserters. And he cries forgiveness for them all. And in those moments, we too were lost. We too, enemies, deserters. We too, those who were clueless about who we are and what on earth we were doing. It's a cry for me and for you while we were sinners, enemies of God. Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. When we were God's enemies, it goes on. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. 
forgiveness for all. But a gift to be received, which takes us to the second saying. Jesus answered, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Who was he answering and what had he been asked? One of the criminals had asked of Jesus something quite outrageous. One of these criminals dying next to Jesus on the cross had asked for help. He'd asked for pardon. He'd asked to be remembered. The only thing more outrageous than this criminal's request was the response that Jesus made. Talk about a deathbed conversion. What a chancer. As Dr. Johnson explains, hanging wonderfully concentrates the mind. And this is one concentrated criminal. Life for him has come into sharp focus. Deep inside, something is finally being understood. He doesn't join the soldiers in humiliating the broken God on the cross. After a life spent trying to be noticed, to be someone, he knows he's about to become no one. To be forgotten for good. A dying fly swatted somewhere onto the floor of history. Yet something mysterious is going on inside him. Some instinct tells him that maybe, just maybe, if this one life on the cross next door will notice him, will remember him, then just maybe he'll never be forgotten. How did he know? Had he heard Jesus speak? Seen him love the lowly, eat with the pickpockets? Maybe not, we don't know. Maybe like the centurion, this was all he'd ever seen of Jesus. The way he was dying. But something about a beaten, slashed, nail-suspended preacher with bones breaking through his flesh and lungs gasping for air, something about Jesus, even under this intolerable pressure, said to that man, if he remembers me, I might never be forgotten. And so he was led to ask, with nothing to lose, Why though would Jesus do it? What in the world could Jesus gain from promising this desperado a place at the banquet? What in the world could this lying, thieving beggar give in return? If anyone was worthless, he was. If any man deserved to die, he probably did. If any fellow was a loser, this guy was probably top of the list. What if anything did he have that would cause Jesus to be interested in him? Nothing. Nothing. This thief had nothing. Absolutely nothing. He could do nothing, offer nothing, promise nothing. And in return for nothing, Jesus offers everything. You will be with me today in a place of unimaginable harmony, a place where this strange passage called life will be known for all that it could be, a place we call paradise, a place where the shalom of last week is experienced in all its fullness without any brokenness or decay. You'll be with me today. We've arrived at the heart of the cross, the place we receive from God everything in return for nothing. We call it grace. Don't kid yourself that you've got something to give to God. Sometimes we're so proud of our own goodness and the Bible says it's just like filthy rags to a pure God. We come with nothing and we get given everything. 
We can't earn his forgiveness. We can't merit his salvation. We can't dare because of the quality of our lives to be remembered beyond our days. But today you will be with me. You will be remembered. For it's by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. Let's say it together, shall we? For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hallelujah. This was the hour that Mary had dreaded all her adult life. She pondered, the Bible says, everything deep in her heart. And the words of Simeon at the temple some 33 or more years ago were surely never forgotten. A sword will pierce your own heart. And here she stands the lonely vigil for her firstborn son. Can I imagine what it was like for Mother Mary? You might, if you're a mother, you might be able to begin to get into what it was like for Mother Mary. And then what was it like for Father God? The lonely vigil. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. Again, astonishingly, Jesus is rising above his own circumstances. And in one brief phrase, he draws together a whole strand of teaching that's gone on throughout his life. Jesus said the second commandment is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And the first one to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And here in this final powerful example, Jesus rises above his own situation in order to reach out to the needs of his mother. It's a reminder to you and to me that maybe there is no place when we are free from obligation towards our neighbour. And sometimes if you're like me, you think, well, I'm having a rough time just at the moment, so I'm going to think about me. I'm going to put my energies into me because it's hard for me right now. I've got nothing left for my neighbour. Hey, and Jesus, when everything was taken away, he reached to his neighbour, he reached to his mother. Many of us are good at caring for other people as long as all's going well with us. But when we're ourselves are against it, facing the pressure, the stress, the energy we might have given away, we bring into ourselves. And Jesus, no. His concern, his love is undiminished. Dear mum, I, I, I love you. He's giving protection to his mother. His mother would have been left, but Joseph was long dead, we imagine, by now. John, she's getting old now. She's been through so much. I brought Mary, my mother, such joy and such pain. John, take her home. Keep us safe, John. Love you, ma'am. And then suddenly interrupting the eerie darkness. Rising above the women, wailing the soldiers gambling, comes not a whimper but a cry. Eloi, Eloi, Lamech, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why am I here by myself? I don't know who I am or what I'm about or what I'm doing. I'm alone and my voice is echoing in the darkness. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time ever, Jesus is utterly, utterly alone. Sure, he'd been alone before, you might say, on the hillside or early in the morning, awake through the night, but never like this. He'd never been alone for his father was there. 
His father embracing him through the darkness of a prayer-filled night. His father whispering to him in the stillness of the dawn. But this, not this, never this. It was what Jesus had feared the most. It was the pain so much deeper than the nails. The agony so much greater than the agony, the wrenching suffocation in his lungs. From eternity to eternity, he had never, ever been alone. And now he's alone. Father, where are you? The fear of humanity has filled him. Who am I? Where am I? The despair darker than the sky. The two who had always been one are now two. Jesus always with God, now without him. The Trinity dismantled. The Godhead disjointed. The unity dissolved. Because sin was wrapping its cloak around him. No wonder it went dark. Sin wrapped around him and the Father turned away. Every lie, every lust, every cheat, every adultery, every greed, every wrong word, bad word, hurtful word. It's all Jesus can feel now. It's all he now knows. He's terribly, terribly, terribly alone. For God made him who had no sin. No sin. It wasn't his lying, his lusting, his cheating, his adultery, his greed. It was mine and it was yours. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as this sin engulfs him, it's more than Jesus can take. The holy heart is broken. And the sin bearer screams through the wastelands of eternity. Why? Alone, that we might never be. Maybe even as I was talking, you're thinking, I I feel alone. I felt alone like that. I'm feeling alone like that today. Alone, that we might never be. Separated from God, that we might reach Him. An agonizing cry of despair that brings us hope. I deserve that. I deserve to face the horror of what I've become. I deserve the Father to turn His face away. I deserve to be banished from His presence, to be left alone in the darkness. The Bible calls it hell, a place without God and all His saving goodness. But He carried mine. My consequence, my blame, my shame, my sin. The Father's face turned away. Should have been me. It should have been you. He hung in our place. What happens next is rather a surprise. Seems a bit out of character. The other cries we might have expected, forgiving sinners, promising paradise, caring for his mother, even the cry of abandonment. But this one's different. Just after we've uh, uh, gone through some great big theological statements, sanctification, justification, propitiation, purification, something quite simple comes and reminds us that there on the cross was a real man. He became one of us. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This was no sham. This was no pretense. This was no Jesus pretending to be like a man, but having some superhuman, superhero strength as He hung on the cross. Not at all. And if you've ever been tempted to think, what on earth does God feel? How would God understand? Remember that there on the cross, as He died in agony, as the darkness came, and as the cloak of your sin and mine wrapped around Him, and the Father turned His face away, and He felt lonelier than, he, than anyone could ever, ever feel. He said, I'm thirsty. I'm just gasping for a drink. I'm thirsty. True, it points to something deeper. Our bodies are mainly made of water and without it we shrivel up and cease to be. Our life runs dry. But water is not the only thing that brings us life. Each of us is thirsty for something more. For something else. Refreshment that transcends our physical needs. Refreshment and life-giving water that sustains us way deep inside. Remember Jesus had said at the celebration of, of the harvest, let anyone who is thirsty... Come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow within him. But now, even this spring of life is drying up. Sweating, struggling to breathe, bent over, bleeding, thirstier than he's ever been. Because we're all dying of thirst. Have you ever wondered about the sheer determination of it all? The immense effort and sacrifice to win our hearts. How way back in the Old Testament, God called a nation to himself and he kept having to forgive them and discipline them and forgive them. Discipline them. The cycle went on and on. Then he promised one day something fantastic would come in the form of himself. Think about that moment motivated by love when a cattle shed was filled with the glory of God. A child was born. He had come with the vulnerability of a newborn baby. He would grow up incognito, in obscurity in Galilee. In time, his calloused hands would heal. His compassionate words would touch hearts. But as incredible as all of that is, like a master painter, God reserved his masterpiece until the end. Of all the earlier acts of love through the Old Testament and even through his coming himself and sharing in our humanity were leading to this one moment. The angels were hushed. The heavens paused to witness. And then in six dark, agonizing hours, the work was done. The work of eternity concentrated in time. And now it's almost over. And with a great shout for all the world to hear, a shout for people of every time and every race, he cries, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's over, it's done, it's perfect tense. It has been done, can never be undone. It is finished and always will be finished. And the effects of what has been finished will go on and never stop. Finished, done, over. It's not a whimper of defeat, but a cry of victory. Dying men don't shout, but this one did. It is finished. 
It's paid for. The very word you would write across a bill that had been paid. The very word that you'd put at the bottom of a loan that's been completed. The very word that you'd stamp on a debt that has just been cleared. The relief, the exhilaration, the freedom, the anticipation of all that will be. Finished. The work over. The work was not the soldiers that day, or the crowds, or the mourners. The work that day had been his. And he'd done it alone. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. A history-long plan of redeeming the world was over. The message of God to man was finished. The work of Jesus as man finished. The song had been sung. The blood had been poured. The sacrifice made. The sting of death itself had died. It was over. A, A cry of defeat. No, a shout of victory. Had his hands not been pinned to the cross. He would have thumped them in the air, into the darkness. As a sign, it was over, over, finished. Something new had been started that would go on till those verses in Revelation you heard last week, that will go on unstoppable because God has finished His work and that can never, ever be undone. And I'm getting a little bit excited about it and I just need to calm down and keep breathing. Isn't it just fantastic that it's over? You know, some of you are spending all your lives trying to pay for the mistakes that you've made. You'll never do it, but it's already been done. Hallelujah. Already done. Sorted. Finished. Over. And then he says, Father, last words to his Father, into your hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're in a war this Word would be the aftermath. Were it a symphony, this would be the second between the final note and the final first applause. Were it a journey, this would be the sight of home. Were it a storm, this would be the sun piercing the clouds. But it wasn't. It was a Messiah. This was a sigh of joy. Father, the voice is hoarse. The voice that called forth the dead, the voice that taught the willing, the voice that screamed at God, says, Father, Father, The two are again one. The abandoned is now found. The schism is now bridged. Father, it's over. Satan's vultures have been scattered. Hell's demons have been jailed. Death has been damned. The sun is out. The sun is out. It's over. An angel sighs. A star wipes a tear. Take me home. Yes, take him home. Take this prince to his king. Take this son to his father. Take this pilgrim to his home. Take me home. Come, ten thousand angels. Come and take this wounded trabador to the cradle of his father's arms. Farewell, mangers, infant. Bless you, holy one. Go home, death slayer. Rest well, sweet son. The battle is over. It's over. Let's pray.